get Patrick up here. Um, the audio is available online on the Mercy House uh, SoundCloud, so you can definitely listen to this again, or if you miss a week, you can go and listen to it online. If you weren't here last week, I highly recommend that you go listen to last week's recording because most of this class, it's not going to matter too much if you miss a week, but the first week was kind of laying the groundwork for the whole class. Recommend listening to that if you weren't there. So we're not going through a lot tonight, uh, but in the few short chapters that you were uh, that was sent out in the email. Uh, it's the first couple chapters of Matthew and the first couple chapters of Luke. There's a lot of really interesting uh, evidence to look at. So I kind of selected a few sections where I want to look at some sort of evidence for the reliability of the gospel, some evidence against, and uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes. We'll see how much time we have. Um. I guess what I would like to do is start off by summarizing a little bit of what we talked about last time so that we have a framework for what are we doing tonight. So last time, Justin kind of summarized what it is that we're doing in this course, which is basically, in his terms, being kind of like historical detectives. So we're interested in this this question. the question of the course, can we trust the Gospels, right? Uh, are they historically reliable? So uh, Justin spent some time in the lecture talking about why this is a really important question. And if you didn't hear that, definitely go listen. He, uh, he has some really good stuff to say about why that question is worth, uh, is, is worth giving an answer to. But how would you go about finding the answer to the question? Well... The way that we're going to do it is we're going to look at the Gospels and we're going to find sort of bits of evidence for or against their reliability. And uh, Justin outlined two kind of broad views about the reliability of the Gospels. Last week he wrote up on the board and he called one view the trustworthy view and another view... The untrustworthy view. I don't, Justin, maybe you were making a, a dig at the people who hold this view, calling it the untrustworthy view. But uh, loosely, uh, I mean, there is going to be a lot of different views that people have about exactly what we should think about the Gospels. But these are like two broad camps, right? Some people hold that the Gospels are largely, historically trustworthy, that the people who wrote them were uh, first-hand witnesses of the events or new first-hand witnesses of the events of the Gospels, that they were reliable witnesses, that what they say can be trusted. And people who have the untrustworthy view say, no, no such thing. The people who wrote these Gospels were nowhere near the events. They didn't have reliable sources and so forth. Um, so... Last week, we kind of categorized different sorts of evidence we're looking for that would support this general view, the trustworthy view, and some different sorts of evidence that would support the untrustworthy view. And the general point was like, we're not going to ever really find any bit of evidence in a passage that's going to be like, 
knock down proof that one of these is true. That's just not really how history works. Uh, it's not like mathematics where you, you just do the proof and QED, I've, I've shown my view to be true. You've got to build a case over time and show how a lot of evidence comes together to, to support a view. So that's kind of what we're, what we're doing here. All right, so, well, let's put this into action then. So um, up at the top of the handout, I just put this uh, nice order of events that I got from this guy, Machen. He's got this book uh, doing exactly the sort of thing that we're doing here. Uh, and he, and he kind of reconstructs the events surrounding Jesus' birth in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And says so this is a pretty plausible uh, kind of order of things. And so I thought that would be nice to have on there just in case it comes up like, wait, what happens first or what happens when? Maybe we'll disagree with him at some point, but that's would be nice to have on there. But, uh, okay, here's what I would like to start with is looking at the genealogies of Jesus. So Matthew has a genealogy. It's the very first thing in his gospel. Matthew 1.1. And Luke has a genealogy. It comes in chapter 3, starting in verse 23. So, uh, did anyone, while you may have been reading the genealogies, notice anything that seemed like evidence for one or the other of these views? Jesus is in the line of David. Great. And uh, one nice thing, which... uh, is some evidence for the trustworthy view, is that this is attested to not only in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, but in Romans 1.3. I'm pretty sure Romans is the passage that uh, tells us that Jesus is in the line of David. Uh, he's also, it also says that he's uh, son of Abraham. I'm pretty sure Galatians 3.16 is the passage that confirms that. So we have a case of what we call multiple attestation. That was something that we talked about, or that was one of the kinds of evidence for the trustworthy view that we talked about last week. So when you have multiple cases where independent works are saying the same thing about a person, that's good evidence that that thing is true of that person. So you're wondering, does the Old Testament count for purposes of multiple attestation? Yeah. So when the Old Testament makes prophetic claims about what will be the case, there may be a clear sense in which it is attesting to, or is attesting of Jesus that he will be of the line of David. That seems true. But it also seems like it requires us to have a certain interpretation of the prophecy, namely that after the fact, we know who the prophecy was referring to, Jesus. And at the time that the prophecy was made, maybe nobody knew who, the, who it was referring to. Maybe the prophet didn't know who it was referring to. It seems like uh, when Peter talks about the prophets uh, in his first epistle, it seems like he's of the mind that they didn't really know in a in a fully-fledged sense who Jesus was. They were looking 
sort of hopefully towards, uh, with expectation towards the coming of Jesus, but they, they couldn't have referred to him as a historical individual in the sense that we can. Um, so yeah, it's, I think for the purposes of doing historical research, it's, it would be tough to say they count. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the goals, the theological goals of, um, the gospel authors are sort of referential of the old Testament. They have, they know their old Testament backwards and forwards is what Justin was saying. And, uh, like one of Matthew, for example, is one of his major goals is to demonstrate that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David. Like, he is the Messiah of the line of David. Uh, I think um, not only... And that's something that comes up in this infancy narrative and something we'll discuss more tonight, but throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's a, there is a problem of independence there, is what Justin was saying. Uh, and when you want or when you're thinking about multiple attestations uh, with respect to a single fact, you want the attestations to be independent for them to count as sort of uh, aggregating evidence or something like that. All right. So, great. So we do have a multiple attestation that uh, Jesus was descended from Abraham and from David. Uh, We also have... I guess just adding on the trustworthy side of things, some indirect confirmation. So what's indirect confirmation? That's something that's going to come up a lot tonight. That's a kind of evidence for the trustworthy view. I think last week we had a slightly longer name for it. We called it indirect confirmation from an external source. And uh, indirect confirmation from an external source is just a situation where some, ex- some source external to the work uh, shows us that something about the work is sort of more plausible than we might have thought otherwise. Uh, so something, some source external to the work shows us maybe some historical fact uh, relevant to the time, such that the work that we're looking at gets that historical fact right. And it would have been something that was really hard to get right if you didn't, if you weren't intimately familiar with the social or political goings-on of the time. Uh, so in this case, Josephus confirms that public records were kept of genealogies going back a really long time. Right now, if somebody told you their uh, genealogical history going back, or however many generations, Matthew or... Luke actually goes a little bit more intense. Uh, that many generations back, would you be pretty surprised? I would be, right? That's that's pretty wild. So you might have at some point read it, one of the gene- genealogies and thought like, how would they have known this? Well, we have some indirect confirmation from Josephus that actually this is the kind of information that was publicly kept at that time. Uh, ironically, in our age of information, it's the kind of thing we don't have access to anymore. Uh, but that's some confirmation that this is not a surprising thing to see. Uh, so for the genealogies, that's we have a couple pieces of, of evidence for the trustworthy view. Right. Uh, there are some 
evidence, some bits of evidence uh, potentially on the other side that might be a little bit more interesting. The genealogies differ in important ways. That might have been surprising. So if you had read them back to back this week and read them very closely, which people are not always inclined to do with genealogies, a, a close read of the genealogies is like sometimes people get to the list of names and they're just like, okay, skim time. But if you read closely, you realize, well, Matthew's got a different list of names than Luke. The genealogies differ in the names between David and Jesus. So, what gives? That's pretty weird. Well, there are a few different uh, possibilities or a few different ways that this could be explicable, the uh, explanations we might give. Okay, so first, there might have been levirate marriages in Jesus' ancestry. Does anyone know what a levirate marriage is? Great. So if you're a married woman and your husband dies, now you're a widow, in a, in a sort of clan-type culture that participates in levirate marriages, of which the Israelites were one such culture, but there have been many around the world throughout history, uh, now the brother of your husband has a responsibility to marry you. To, you know, it's like widows are not generally well, throughout history, have not generally been well cared for outside of the context of marriage. So this is a way to, to care for and safeguard widows. So even though you're, the wife would be married to a new person, legally, her children with the new person would still count as children of the first husband, even though biologically, they would be children of this new husband. Uh, the, point, the legal point being to give the husband who died a chance to carry on his name, right? Okay, so the thought with this proposal is, well, maybe there were some levirate marriages in Jesus' ancestry, and that would result in two ways to trace his genealogy, uh, like a legal track and a biological track, like who was actually his biological parents and who were legally the ones we were counting at those levirate uh, choice points. Does that make sense? Yeah so, yeah, so your thought is it would be surprising if a levirate marriage resulted in disparate uh, family trees from a, from a point sort of upstream ancestrally, but then somehow they both led to Jesus. Yeah, I honestly have not researched this well enough to, like, draw up exactly, you know, how many possibilities, <laughs> like, uh, how many possibilities there would be given a certain, you know, marriage at a certain point, and where, yeah, it seems like there would be a lot. Uh, maybe it would behoove us to look at the other potential harmonizations, and then we can compare. Yeah, so that's a good question, Tao. So if the wife, or if the husband doesn't have a brother, maybe it then it, I mean, it's possible that this just depends on the particular practices of a given culture or the dispositions of a group of people at the time. But, yeah, maybe it's like a next of kin or something like that. Yeah, this is part of the drama of the story in Ruth is that the, the, some of the kinsmen redeemers or people who should be are not doing their job. So here's another suggestion. Uh, maybe one gospel writer 
is tracing Jesus' biological ancestry, namely Luke, while Matthew is more concerned with kingly succession. Matthew, after all, is really concerned with showing that Jesus is the son of David, the sort of heir to the Davidic throne. So he's tracing Jesus' ancestry from David onward according to who was the rightful heir of the throne, regardless of their biological relations. Maybe that's a weird way to trace a genealogy, but it sort of fits Matthew's theological purposes, you might think. Yeah, so the thought is Luke uh, is doing a genealogy in the way we would expect. He's just reporting uh, just parent-to-child biological relations all the way from Abraham down to Jesus. Matthew is more concerned with kingly succession from David to Jesus. So he want, his, a big purpose of his gospel is to show that Jesus is the son of David, that is, he's the heir to the Davidic throne. Yeah, David was a king in, in ancient Israel. And so, and, and both uh, genealogies show that Jesus descended from David. But Luke's maybe was showing just the biological facts about that descent, whereas Matthew maybe focused more on the, the heirs to the throne. So who was, who was the proper uh, heir to the throne? Follow that relation. Who, you know, David, who was the heir to David? Who was the heir to him? Who was the heir to him? All the way down to Jesus. So, so the point of divergence is, is from David, Luke goes to Nathan, Matthew goes to Solomon, who would be the heir to the throne. Yeah, great. So this could be really helpful for helping us discern which of these harmonizations we might like, if any. So your point is that Matthew seems really concerned with the history of Israel and like major events in the life of her people as he's laying out the, his genealogy, whereas Luke is just like, here's the list. There it is, nice and clean. That seems like an important difference. So maybe we can keep that in mind when we are comparing the three options. Yeah, so one big purpose for Luke is to show that Jesus is the Messiah that has been foretold, that he's, he's fulfilling all these different prophecies. And, but another one is show that he's the Messiah of everybody, not just to the Jews. Yeah, since, since he was a Gentile, this is an important point. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the Jewish people were, you know, a particular people group that had been a very, uh, particular and I guess maybe somewhat insular people group for a long time, thousands of years at this point. And, uh, they were awaiting a Messiah. Jesus, we think is that Messiah, the one they were awaiting, and uh, a lot of them, I think, were of the mind that when that Messiah came, he was going to save the Jews, just the Jews. And the way he was going to save them was he was going to deliver them from political oppression. He was going to be a really good kind of earthly king. They had maybe a limited mindset about what a Messiah could or should be 
so the Gentiles is basically everybody who's not a Jew. That's just a word for like all the others. Uh, so one big uh, theme in the New Testament is Jesus came first to the Jews. He did come and sort of talk to them first, but that the point of his uh, his coming and the salvation that he offers is not just given to the Jews, but that it's given to everybody. And that's, this is something that you see not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, where uh, God says that Abraham's seed, that is Abraham's offspring, that, and he's talking about Jesus there, is going to bless all the nations of the earth. So it's not, he's, he's starting... Uh, so way back in the, like the beginning of the Old Testament, he starts the nation of Israel in Abraham. But he says, through that, uh, through this thing I'm starting in you, I'm going to basically bring about this Savior who's going to be a blessing to everybody. Okay, so third option for what, what we might say about the differences between the genealogies between David and Jesus. We might think that... Matthew is giving us Joseph's ancestry, while Luke is giving us Mary's. Why would we think that? Well, there's some evidence uh, traditionally. It, well, it's, traditionally it's been thought that Mary's father bore some variant of the name uh, Heli or Eli. So Luke appears to name Joseph as, immediate, as Jesus' immediate ancestor. In 3.23, he says, well... Jesus uh, himself, when he began to teach, was about 30 years old, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Uh, but the as was supposed inserted in that verse might indicate that Joseph's name should be read as like a parenthetical kind of remark. Like, as people thought, he was the son of Joseph. And then the real list starts right after that. That's one way you could think about that. Uh, or you might think that well, Luke was part of a patriarchal society, and so he lists Joseph as Jesus' father. But then he, but because he's concerned with giving Mary's line, he he then jumps over to to Mary's line and lists the father-in-law of Joseph rather than the father of Joseph. That's a good question. So Joanna's wondering: Would would a son-in-law be referred to as the son of his father-in-law? Because Luke says Joseph the son of Heli. Great. So, yeah, in Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That tells us maybe the son of has a pretty elastic use, or like can be used elastically is maybe a way to say it. Um, does that mean it could be applied to from a son to a father-in-law or... Yeah, in that relationship, it doesn't prove it. It's some evidence. Oh, great. It's just the genitive? Okay, great. So, yeah, in the Greek, it's just the genitive case. And we're just inserting, apparently in the translation, the son of. Uh, so we're doing a little bit of extrapolation there that, uh, yeah. So if Joseph is just of Heli, that's not so clearly as odd. Okay, so one, one reason you might like this view is Mary appears to be like the main protagonist of uh, Luke's infancy narrative. He spends a lot more time talking about 
the Annunciation of Mary, uh, or Annunciation to Mary, excuse me, and like stuff that's going on in her experience, whereas Matthew gives us the Annunciation to Joseph and seems to give us a lot more things from Joseph's perspective. Joseph's kind of like, uh, how do I navigate this situation? And like, oh, hauling my family over to Egypt to keep them safe. And um, so you might think that given the way the infancy narrative plays out, this is not an implausible suggestion, that one of them is concerned with giving uh, the genealogy from one perspective, one from another. And, well, given that Joseph wasn't actually Jesus' biological father, this is another reason why it might be not crazy for Luke to want to give the genealogy from Mary's side. So those are some reasons that you might like that view. So three, three possible harmonizations. The Lev- Levirate marriage theory uh, gives you two ways to trace ancestry, one biological, one le- legal. Uh, biological versus kingly succession, two ways of tracing up a genealogy for a king. And Joseph versus Mary's uh, genealogical tree. That's a good point. So, yeah, Ian says it's they're not mutually exclusive. There might be some uh, combination of a couple of the views or something that you could give. Yeah, so you could have, like, I don't know, Joseph's side with love marriages and Mary's side without. Or, uh, yeah, <laughs> there could be a whole lot of complications a very much more nuanced situation than just those three stark contrasts and that's good to to think about yeah i'm not sure if there's uh i I mean clearly there's not enough information that there has been like a consensus decision oh this is obviously what happened is there enough information to form a reasonable conclusion that one answer is like the correct one maybe that it might take some more reading up uh or a little bit more expertise than we have or something yeah so this is a a good i was hoping someone might ask this kind of thing so we've got this potential discrepancy and then i've given you three ways that you could uh i've kind of said harmonize the two parts of the discrepancy, the things that don't seem to fit. You can maybe make them fit somehow. Is that a very good, a valid tactic? Is that something we should be doing, trying to harmonize discrepancies? If we're, try- if we're just trying to count up evidence on each side? You might worry that that's, like, cheating in some way. Like, I, w- I was supposed to be playing an objective game, and I was, like, counting evidence for the trustworthy view, counting evidence for the untrustworthy view, but then I, ca- I counted over here, and I was just like, oh, but I can discount this evidence so I can keep my side going strong. Yeah, this is good. So Ian's point is, look, when you get a bit of evidence, you don't just, like, take the evidence and then stop there. You can think about, well, what's the strength of this evidence or how, much, how strongly should I count it or should I discount it? Is there actually a good explanation for the appearance, the initial appearance of the evidence? Uh, so actually, uh, that fellow Machen I mentioned earlier has a nice discussion of this where he says, like, look, if you get two people testifying and apparently there's a discrepancy between their testimonies, what would you do? You would not just take the discrepancy and say, oh, there's a discrepancy. It must be the case that one of them is lying. 
you'd probably go ask them about it, right? You'd try and figure out, oh, is there, is there actually a way that your testimony can be harmonized? Uh, so-and-so said, or person A said this, but person B, you said this, and that doesn't seem to fit. And you'd go try and figure out, actually, do your testimonies fit, or are you disagreeing with each other? You'd try and find out more. All right, so let me move on to one other discrepancy or apparent discrepancy in the genealogies. Not only do they differ in the names that are there between David and Jesus, but they differ in the number of names all the way from Abraham to Jesus. I like to ask when you find these kind of discrepancies, what gives? Uh, is this a real discrepancy? Is there a lack of fit here, or is there some good explanation? In this case, there's probably a pretty good explanation, and it has to do with Matthew's theological goals. Uh, so it's pretty reasonable to think that Matthew is skipping some generations. Um, we can actually check this by consulting First uh, Chronicles three ten through twelve. Cool. So there were a few uh, skipped generations in Matthew's portion of that, right around uh, Matthew 1, 7 to 9. I won't make anyone read that unless somebody wants to, but uh, there are like two or three skipped generations in there. Okay, so what? Why is Matthew skipping generations? <laughs> He's got chronicles. He, he, he could write it down just like, uh, you know, that's, that's not too hard. Well, for one thing, like Justin already pointed out, Matthew 1.1 shows us that the father of, son of locutions are not really something you have to take literally. He calls Jesus son of David, son of Abraham in that first verse. Was Jesus actually the son of David? Like in the sense that we often use that term? No, because David lived thousands of years before Jesus. That would that would be very surprising to find out. Jesus was the literal, like, direct son of David. So, yeah, likewise for David to be of Abraham. So he's using these terms in some kind of extended sense. So why is he skipping names, though? Well, he apparently goes through some effort to organize the names in his genealogy into three sets of 14. He points this out at the end, right? Uh, so this pattern is a pattern that emphasizes Jesus' Davidic ancestry. Something I've mentioned already that David is really, or excuse me, Matthew is really concerned to do in his gospel. He wants to show or em- show slash emphasize that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah that people have been looking forward to, waiting for. So how does uh, having three sets of 14 emphasize Davidic ancestry? Well, it has to do with this rabbinic practice called gematria. Don't ask me too many specific questions about it because I am not a rabbi, uh, nor do I profess to know how to, to practice gematria or anything like that. But in gematria, letters, given letters of the alphabet are assigned numbers and... I think partially this is used as an, as an interpretive practice. Once again, don't ask me how, how that's supposed to work, but some kind of numerology. 
But uh, in that practice, a name came to be associated with the sum of the numbers that were associated with the letters that made up the name. Okay, so you have, yeah, you have some letters that make up a name. Each of them is assigned a number. Sum all those numbers. That's the number that gets associated with the name. Well, the sum for the name David is 14. So it's plausible that Matthew skipped generations so he could create this pattern, 14, 14, 14. Great. So, yeah, Ian's point is very good. So the, we get three sets of 14, and the three sets are important because they get us uh, from from and to major benchmarks in, in Israelite history. So there's a really nice uh, sort of consonance like, yes, of course Jesus was born now. Uh, it seems to be the kind of theological point that Matthew is making. Yeah, so you're wondering, or you're thinking it would be really nice to know what Matthew was thinking, why he chose those names, why he, why he felt like it would be okay to drop people out for the sake of making that theological point. Yeah, what, what, what other people think? Does it strike you that way as well? Or, great. So there's, yeah, some, something about it that maybe makes us feel like, why would you leave this out? It, make, it makes it seem like you're not uh, being a credible reporter. But then also there's some amount of like, well, it's tough to know which names he was leaving out, why, uh, in their entirety at least. We know a few that he was leaving out, but why was he choosing those? And it's tough to make to draw any like very strong conclusions from it. Yeah, that's, that's also a really helpful point. So just what were the expectations of Matthew's audience as to what a faithful reporter would be doing? Well, if he's not putting in any false claims about Jesus' ancestry, maybe that's the extent of what they would expect, uh, whereas we would expect something more like all the truth, something, uh, yeah, maybe there are different, different norms at different times. Yeah, so whether Matthew is being in any way underhanded or smudging things might depend on what he's trying to do. And if the claim here is, I'm going to give you a complete genealogy of Jesus, his whole biological ancestry back to Abraham, or just back, you know, yeah, going back just that far, then it seems like he's failed. If the thought is, I'm going to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham and all the prophecies that prophets have been making about Messiah, and the uh, kind of important part about that is that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, Oh, and I'll fill in some of the gaps for you. And I'm going to do that in this kind of clever way where I'm going to show, I'll just show you 14 generations between each. And that'll be like, for those in the know, that'll be like a clever little flashing signal, like son of David, son of David. If his goal is to make the theological point about who Jesus is, namely son of Abraham, son of David, and not so much about giving a complete genealogy, then maybe he's not doing anything uh, quite so surprising. Matthew, in particular, is very concerned with showing that point because there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that said the Messiah would be a descendant of David. So Matthew wanted to show 
Yeah, Jesus is the son of David. The one, the uh, he wanted to show that Jesus was the Messiah. One of the prophecies that was really relevant to that fact was the fact that Jesus was descended from David. Yeah, I think that's a suggestion that that's a really good way of putting the suggestion that Justin was kind of making is or maybe that's what you you were saying Justin, but yeah. Maybe if the point is Jesus is descended from David, then if you fill in the gaps somewhat, but not all the way, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, this is a hard uh, section to wrestle with. It, it's hard because it forces you to get after what is the gospel writer doing? What do you think they're supposed to be doing? What's actually going on when someone is writing scripture? Um, so, yeah, there, it's really good that we're thinking about this. Um, uh, okay, so maybe we can talk about the birth of Jesus. So, yeah, I get the special privilege of doing the the baby Jesus episode of this class. Everything after, we're doing adult Jesus. But today, we're talking about baby Jesus. Okay, so let me point out some points of confirmation for the trustworthy uh, the trustworthy view so some stuff about location well we know that nazareth is a real city because it still exists there are like 60,000 people who live there more than northampton or amherst uh, we know that bethlehem of judea is a real city archaeologists know about it uh he, Along with this kind of indirect confirmation is another kind of evidence for the historical reliability of what the Gospels are claiming. And this is uh, one of my favorite sorts. It's an embarrassment. So evidence uh, of the embarrassing kind is, is this sort of thing. It's, well, if this were false, no one would ever claim it, right? Uh, so say you find out from so-and-so that they did some really awkward thing like uh, tripping and falling on their face in front of a crowd of uh, high schoolers or something like that who are going to make brutal fun of them. And they tell you about it later. And they're like, well, that's pretty embarrassing. If you hadn't done that, you certainly wouldn't have told me about it, right? Well, uh, Jesus being from Nazareth is... Sort of like that in a really not very similar way. Uh, <laughs> so Nazareth is a really obscure place. Uh, and Galilee is a very rural region. Is it Andrew who says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because of this, Nazareth is like the boonies. It's like, uh, it's like being from, uh, what's a place around here I can make fun of and no one will take offense? It's like being from Leverett, like out there, and there's nobody who lives there practically, and no one of note, who, whoever really comes from there. And so, is it Andrew who says that? Nathaniel? Nathaniel, that's who says it. Great. Uh, so yeah, one of Jesus' disciples, when he's first told about Jesus, Nathaniel, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So his friend is telling him, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and Nathaniel's like... Come on, you're pulling my chain. So even the, the one of the other gospel writers is acknowledging this fact that Nazareth is kind of an embarrassing 
not a necessarily embarrassing place to be from, but it's not a likely place, like, uh, in terms of where you'd expect the Messiah to grow up and hail from. And if you were going to invent a Messiah story, it's not the one you would invent. So that's a nice uh, uh, bit of evidence. It's not the story that someone would make up where they making up a story from whole cloth. All right, so we also have in the infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke multiple attestations to a number of different facts. We have uh, attestations to the fact that Jesus was born to a virgin, that her name was Mary, that he was born in the town of Bethlehem of Judea, but that he uh, grew up later from Nazareth, so that he was from Nazareth in Galilee. Why would we want to say that this is a case of multiple attestation? Because remember, earlier we were saying, well, to have a case of multiple attestation, you need two sources that on the topic they're attesting to are independent sources, right? You don't want two sources that are colluding and then attesting to the same thing, because that's not that's really just giving you one source from two different uh, mouths, as it were. So why would we think that what Matthew and Luke say about Jesus' infancy, that where they agree, it's a case of multiple attestation. I guess maybe a better way to ask that question is, why might we think that on the infancy narratives, Matthew and Luke are independent sources? Great. So the, yeah, so we, yeah, so we have good reason to think that Matthew and Luke use the Gospel of Mark as a common source, but. We have good reason to think the, the author of that gospel wouldn't necessarily be a great source uh, concerning the infancy narrative. And go look at that gospel. There's no infancy narrative. Moreover, look at the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke. They're really different. They, have, uh, they, they include a lot of different details. The emphasis... Is a lot the flow of the of the narrative is very different in each case, um, so it's actually really interesting. There are some potential discrepancies that might uh, that, that people have worried about because of the differences. We'll look at one that I think can definitely be resolved, uh, but the fact that they're so different actually gives us reason to think that they are independent accounts. Uh, because if you were if you were sort of colluding to to uh, come up together with the same account, it would tend to look a lot more similar than, than these two accounts in fact do. So when they so because we have good reason to think they are independent accounts, when they agree on something, this counts as, as good good evidence uh, in this kind of way. There are multiple attestations from independent accounts. Um, a couple, or a few, a few more, actually several more points, but that, <laughs> that are, I think can go relatively quickly. Uh, so the names in the infancy narrative are attested Jewish-Palestinian names at that point in history. So like Mary, Joseph, Herod, uh, and so forth. Uh, there were some people who had the idea or proposed the idea that the idea of the Messiah... Uh, as the son of God or as the son of the Most High was uh, sort of imposed after the fact on Jewish beliefs and that 
Well, anyways, that, that this was not around at the time of Jesus, but that it was a sort of historical construct to impose it on them after the fact. And then the gospel writers picked up on that at, in their time. But actually, we have this, uh, dis- we've discovered this Qumran fragment that has vindicated that idea of the Messiah as son of God and son of the Most High as being present in Jewish thought during Jesus' time. Yeah, so all the time in uh, biblical historical studies, but also like in in uh, classics or people who are studying ancient philosophy, these this, these sort of archaeological finds are relevant. People find bits of scrolls or pottery or things like that in caves or other places and digs that, okay, we dated it to this time, and now we have some new uh, fragment of a piece of writing to figure out what does it say, and maybe it'll give us some new evidence about what people were believing in that given time. All right, we got five minutes. I'm going to try and tell you about one last potential bit of evidence for the untrustworthy view from the infancy narrative from the birth of Jesus. So you read uh, the beginning of the second book of Matthew, Matthew 2.1. He says, Now when Jesus was in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of the king of Herod, or in the days of Herod the king, excuse me, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, blah, 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 blah. They probably said something more intelligible than that, but... Uh, so that's the first mention of a place in Matthew. He puts them in Bethlehem. Then when you read Luke 2, 1 through 5, he says, Now it happened in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to enroll themselves, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now he's now the Luke tells us they start in Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. So it seems like Matthew has them starting in Bethlehem. Luke has them starting in Nazareth. What gives? What's the deal with that? You might wonder. Uh, is this a discrepancy? No. It's not. Uh, So some people have tried to press the claim that it is, but it's actually pretty easy to show how this is not a discrepancy. So Matthew never actually claims that Mary and Joseph started off in Bethlehem. He just says, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? He doesn't say anything about their whereabouts until the second chapter, first verse, when the geographical details become kind of important to his story. So that order of events I put on the top of your handout can give that. This is one, I think pretty good interpretation of the order that all the things happen, happened in, uh, that we can construct from the infancy narratives. And that makes sense of, uh, or harmonizes the apparent discrepancy here. So starting with, well, assume they're, they're in, in Nazareth before, or for the beginning of all these things. So they're in Nazareth. Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. She comes back to Nazareth. She discovers she's pregnant. She 
uh, or Joseph is visited by an angel. Joseph and Mary get married. Then they go to Bethlehem on account of the census. Then Jesus is born. Then the shepherds visit. Jesus is circumcised. They go to the temple. They go back to Bethlehem. The Magi visit. Then they flee to Egypt. And then they go back to Nazareth where Jesus grows up. And I think if you check everything that the infancy narratives say, there's, there are no contradictions in either of them with that timeline right there. Yeah, I, I, by discovering, I didn't mean... And I, yeah, I took this out of Machen's book, but I didn't mean like she didn't know she was going to be present, pregnant like, oh, wow, I'm pregnant, but just that, oh, now it's, it's obvious, yeah. Uh, okay, we're out of time. So next week, come back, and you'll get to hear all about the exciting topic of the census. Dun, dun, dun.